afternoon. The last case is State versus Wilson. We'll hear from the appellant. May it please the court. My name is David Andrews. I represent Josiah Wilson. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Josiah Wilson was convicted of first-degree murder and attempted armed robbery based on a shooting that occurred in June 2017. At first blush, the evidence appeared to be straightforward. The evidence showed Josiah arranged to sell a cell phone to Zachary Finch and that Mr. Finch died from a single gunshot wound after meeting Josiah and two friends, Tink and Monty. Evidence also showed that Josiah told his girlfriend that he shot and robbed someone. As one of the detectives who later interviewed Josiah put it, the shooting happened in broad daylight at a busy apartment complex with, quote, a ton of people. Nevertheless, during the trial, the evidence became murkier and more complicated. The evidence showed that investigators found the cash that Mr. Finch brought to the sale in Mr. Finch's pocket and swirling in the wind near his body. In addition, in a significant piece of evidence relied on by the state and presented by the state, an interview with Josiah, Josiah explained multiple times that he had planned to sell his phone to Mr. Finch and that the person who shot Mr. Finch was Tink. The state did not present the testimony of Tink, Monte, or any other eyewitness, and there was no video of the shooting. On the basis of this evidence, the state pursued a theory of felony murder based on attempted armed robbery. The state also argued that Josiah could be guilty of those charges under acting in concert. During the charge conference, the defense attorney asked for an instruction on second-degree murder, but the trial court denied that request. Two judges at the Court of Appeals agreed, but a dissenting judge believed the evidence was conflicted, conflicting and warranted an instruction on second-degree murder. This court should reverse the majority opinion below for the reasons stated in the dissent. It is a long-held principle that courts must, must instruct on lesser-included offenses when the evidence of the greater offense is conflicting. As this court explained in State v. Strickland, a court must instruct on a lesser, quote, whenever there is any evidence or when any inference can be fairly deduced tending to show a lesser offense. And when deciding whether an instruction on a lesser is warranted, the court must view the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant. With these principles in mind, an instruction on second-degree murder was warranted in this case. The state's theory, as the prosecutor explained in closing, was that Josiah, quote, set Zachary up and, quote, made an agreement with his buddies to do a robbery. But when the evidence is viewed in the light most favorable to Josiah, there is a significant conflict in the evidence on that specific question. The state elicited, for example, evidence that when Josiah talked to his friend Travis about the Let Go app, Josiah said he was going to use it to buy a phone. In other words, not to set anyone up and not to rob them. The evidence also showed that Josiah, Tink, and Monty did not rob Mr. Finch. They left without taking his cash. The state also presented an 80-page interview transcript and a recording of the interview in which Josiah repeatedly said that he intended to sell his phone to Mr. Finch. All of this evidence directly conflicted with the state's theory and warranted an instruction on second-degree murder. One of the main reasons we have jury trials, one of the reasons we bring juries in to decide cases is to have impartial fact-finders that resolve 
conflicts in the evidence. They make credibility determinations and they resolve deep conflicts like the conflict in this case. There was this deep conflict at the heart of Design's trial and yet the jury was prohibited from properly resolving that conflict with the lesser included uh, offense of second degree murder. One of the state's arguments is that there is no evidence from which a jury could rationally acquit Design of first degree murder and find him guilty of second degree murder. The state argues, for example, that Jazine arranged the sale of the phone and knew beforehand that Tink wanted to rob Mr. Finch. But the state's argument takes a one-sided view of the evidence. That might be one way a jury could interpret the evidence, but it's certainly not the only way, and it's certainly not viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to Jazine. Jazine repeatedly said he only wanted to sell his phone and that he told Tink not to rob Mr. Finch. A rational jury could choose to believe those statements. It is their prerogative to do so. They make these type of credibility determinations. Additionally, as I mentioned earlier, evidence of the shooting was and is murky. No eyewitness testified, and the only eyewitness the jury heard from was Desion through the statements he made outside of court. A rational jury would be confronted with the following pieces of evidence. First, Josiah told friends that he, he either shot and killed someone or that he shot and robbed someone. Second, Josiah vigorously denied being part of any plan to rob Mr. Finch. Third, Josiah said Tink shot Mr. Finch. And fourth, no cash was taken from Mr. Finch. Now, contrary to the state's arguments, a rational jury could reconcile all of those pieces of evidence by concluding that it was unclear whether Josiah shot Mr. Finch in furtherance of a robbery, but that he nevertheless shot him with malice and therefore committed only second degree murder. That is a rational, reasonable view of the evidence. That is a reasonable conclusion to draw from these facts when viewed in the light most favorable to Josiah. The state also argues that the evidence that Josiah didn't take the cash is a red herring because Jazine was only convicted of attempted armed robbery, which doesn't require a completed taking. But the state is not looking at that fact the right way. This case does not involve a sufficiency argument in which an appellate court must determine whether the state proved the offense of conviction. Instead, this case involves an entirely separate argument, whether the trial court should have instructed on a lesser offense. And the test on that issue is different from the test for sufficiency arguments. In fact, the state has expressly asked this court to resolve that question by using a specific test, the rational jury test. Take them at their word. Hold their feet to the fire on that test because a, a jury could look at that fact and conclude that if Zion and his friends didn't take the cash, maybe that wasn't the plan to begin with. It's that simple. That is a rational view of the evidence. That fact is also consistent with Jazion's repeated denials during the interview that he did not intend to rob Mr. Finch. A jury could rationally find those statements credible based on the evidence that no cash was taken from Mr. Finch. Ultimately, though, a jury could rationally rely on the evidence that no cash was taken from Mr. Finch to acquit Jazion of felony murder and attempted armed robbery and convict him instead of second-degree murder. The state also argues that the statements Jazion made during the interview did not support an instruction on second-degree murder because a defendant's denials do not conflict, constitute conflicting evidence. Again, the state is mistaken. 
First, for context, the state did not present this argument in the Court of Appeals, and it played a very minor role in the reasoning of the majority opinion below, and that just provides context for the strength of the argument. But on the merits, the argument is wrong as well. We have, to, we have to remember what the rule is here, and one way it's expressed is in State v. Thomas. Now, a side note real quick, there are two State v. Thomas decisions. We both talk about them in our briefs. I'm referring to the one from 1999 in this instance. And in that case, this court held that a defendant's, quote, own testimony denying involvement in the crime did not support an instruction on second-degree murder because it, quote, did not tend to negate the elements of the greater offense of first-degree murder. Now consider the first part of that rule. I'm not relying on Josiah's testimony for a good reason. Josiah did not testify. What I am relying on is the state's evidence. As this court said in Strickland, the determinative factor is what the state's evidence tends to prove. These statements, these purported denials that Josiah was making is coming directly from the heart of the state's case. The defense attorney wanted to suppress that interview. She moved to suppress the interview. She objected at trial, but she lost. The state got it in and then used the interview to great effect in closing argument. The prosecutor was there on page 1229 quoting Josiah. He told you that they were there, they had guns, that he had a gun, and he knew this was going to be a robbery. Now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the state can't get away from these statements fast enough. This is their evidence. Don't let them get away from it. They introduced it. They are bound by it. Now think about the second part of the rule from State v. Thomas. The statements Josiah made during the interview tended to negate the elements of felony murder. If you need an example of this, look at the other State v. Thomas, the one from 1989. Again, it's discussed in the briefing. In that case, this court held that statements the defendant made during a police interview contradicted the state's theory of acting in concert and therefore supported an instruction on, a, on the lesser included offense of involuntary manslaughter. That's exactly what's going on here. Josiah made statements in a police interview that directly contradicted the state's theory of acting in concert. And so, of course, they can be used to determine whether an instruction on second-degree murder was warranted. Finally, another way this court has expressed the rule is in State v. Maness, again, relied upon by the state in their brief, in which this court held, quote, mere denial of the charges by the defendant does not require submission of a lesser-included offense. That's not what's happening here. This case does not involve, quote, mere denials. It involves a lengthy discussion where Josiah gave answers to a detective's questions over a span of 80 pages and an hour and 15 minutes. This is not a case where detectives openly accused Josiah of a crime and Josiah denied involvement. Instead, detectives showed up and they asked him a series of questions about what he was doing on the offense date. And Josiah actively participated in, in the discussion. And so it's not accurate to characterize these statements Josiah made as mere denials. If they were denials, the prosecutor would not have relied so heavily on Josiah's statements from that interview in closing. <clears throat> you can also just look at the statements themselves and understand that the characterization of them as denials is wrong. Take one of the first examples. When Detective Rooks asked Josiah what his agreement with Mr. Finch was, Josiah said, he was supposed to buy my phone. This is on page 43 of the interview transcript. As a technical matter, 
that's not a denial. That's Josiah providing a response to an open-ended question. And also, again, the, the prosecutor capitalized on Josiah's statements during closing argument. The state relies on Josiah's statements in their brief to say that no instruction was warranted on second-degree murder. But at any rate, it is fundamentally unfair to let the state use portions of their own evidence that they want to convict Josiah of the greater offense and to uphold that conviction on appeal, but turn around and deny Josiah the ability to use portions of the same evidence that the state presented to support a lesser offense. For all these reasons, the state's argument about the denial rule does not apply to Josiah. Finally, Josiah was prejudiced by the trial court's failure to instruct on second-degree murder. There was evidence that Josiah was the one who shot Mr. Finch and therefore that he acted at a minimum with malice. But there was also a significant conflict over the question that would have elevated this case to first-degree murder, whether he planned to rob Mr. Finch. As I have already mentioned, there was evidence indicating that Josiah knew about a plan to rob Mr. Finch, but also evidence that he did not intend to rob Mr. Finch. The trial court's decision not to instruct on second-degree murder, it eliminated the mechanism the jury would have had to resolve any doubts they might have had about the robbery plan in Josiah's favor. Now, both this court and the United States Supreme Court have talked about the unique pressure that all-or-nothing verdicts place on jurors. As the United States Supreme Court explained in Keeble, this binary choice, choice creates pressure where one of the elements remains in doubt, but the defendant is, quote, plainly guilty of some offense. That exact concern is present in this case, and it's why the trial court's decision not to instruct on second-degree murder was so prejudicial to Josiah. But in addition to that, the jury may well have found Josiah guilty of second-degree murder if only they had been given the chance. Remember, this argument is preserved. We are not in plain error land here. I do not have to show that there is a reasonable probability of a different outcome. The only question here is whether a different outcome was reasonably possible. And there is certainly a reasonable possibility that the jury would have convicted Josiah of second-degree murder instead of first-degree murder. As I've talked about, the evidence in this case was conflicting. Was there a planned robbery or not? And if not, why did they not take the cash when they had the chance to do so? In light of that conflict, there is a reasonable possibility that the jury would have concluded that the evidence of the robbery plan was too uncertain, too ambiguous, too murky, as I said, to convict Josiah of first-degree murder, but that given Josiah's admissions, he was guilty of at least second-degree murder. That outcome is within the realm of possibility in this case. Josiah was prejudiced because the jury never had the chance to resolve that conflict in the evidence against a lesser offense. One that I might add has a lower sentence. Now, if you grant relief, of course, this does, doesn't mean that Josiah would walk out of prison. It just puts this case and this issue back into the hands of the body that really should have been deciding the conflict in, this, in the first place, the jury. This case is all about how critical it is that juries resolve contested facts. Because the jury may well have resolved this conflict in Josiah's favor, I ask this court to reverse the majority opinion and grant him a new trial. That is the end of my presentation. Um, I am happy 
to answer any questions you might have. Um, I'm also happy to sit down and save the rest for rebuttal. Well, I, I would like yes, to Robert. ask just one question. As I understand the Court of Appeals argument, the majority of the Court of Appeals argument on this point, or position, that they seem to be saying it's just irrational, that no reasonable jury could, could decide that um, he had no intent to rob, um, there was no, no uh, plan or desire to rob, he was gonna sell the phone, and then he just spontaneously decided to, to kill the victim in this case. That, that seems to me to be the, the rationale in the majority, and what's your response to that? A jury could look at this, okay, so as I understood the majority saying this, the only thing this evidence showed was a planned robbery. That's what I understand the majority to be saying. I view the evidence as the question of whether there was a robbery was deeply conflicting, okay? And it's the state's own forensic evidence, their own crime scene technicians, their own first responders who get there and they find the cash, the $200, on Mr. Finch's body, near his body, and that dovetails, that is consistent with Desion's repeated denials in the interview. A rational jury could look at that and say, it doesn't seem like there really was a robbery plan, or a rational jury might think, we just don't know what happened. Nevertheless, that same rational jury would know that Desion at a minimum, admitted to shooting Mr. Finch. That is malice. That's acting with malice that is second-degree murder. A jury could reconcile all of these facts and say, we don't know what the deal is with this robbery. It may have happened, it may not have happened, but we know the one firm thing we know is that Jazion admitted to acting with malice, and that's second-degree murder. That, that is a legitimate pathway for the jury to convict Josiah of this lesser included offense of second degree murder. I hope that answers your question, Justice Earls. Yes, thank you. Are there any other questions? If not, I'll take my seat. Thank you all. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellate. May it please the court, Chief Justice and Associate Justices, my name is Marissa Jensen. I'm with the North Carolina Department of Justice here on behalf of the state in this matter. On June 18th, 2017, which was Father's Day, Zachary Finch, who was 21 years old at the time, had come home from college for the summer. He was a student at Kentucky University where he was on a full academic scholarship and a member of the varsity baseball team. During that summer, Zach was coaching Little League and working at a farm to save money to buy a ring for his girlfriend who he planned to marry. He wanted to attend paramedic school after he graduated. That day, Zach told his mother he was going to buy a phone and would be back soon. His mother didn't want him to go, but Zach told her he was fine and would be meeting the seller at a park. He said the seller was a father with kids. Zach left at about 12.30 p.m. And at approximately 1.30 p.m., law enforcement officers responded to a call regarding a shooting and a possible robbery at Arbor Glen Apartments in Charlotte. They located Zach lying face down between the sidewalk and the grass with his head turned to the left and blood on his arms and back. He had no pulse. The cause of Zach's death was a gunshot wound to his chest. 
The Court of Appeals majority below correctly held that the defendant was not entitled to a second degree murder instruction in this case because the evidence in this case simply would not permit a jury to rationally find the defendant guilty of second degree murder and acquit him of felony murder. In any event, the evidence of felony murder was not in conflict and did not show that the defendant did not intend to rob Zach, even when viewed in the light most favorable to the defendant. The appellant states here today that the question of whether there was a planned robbery was deeply conflicting. And that's just not the case on this record, on these facts in this case. The Court of Appeals correctly pointed that out in their analysis, and they correctly articulated, applied the test as articulated in State v. Gwynn. Now, the defendant has made no arguments in their briefs or here today that Gwynn is not good law, that it should be overruled. Um, and so we're going off of the test that is articulated in Gwynn, which is that when the state proceeds on first-degree murder, on a theory of felony murder only, the trial court must instruct on all lesser-included offenses if two conditions are met. One, the evidence of the underlying felony supporting felony murder is in conflict, and, and that's important, the evidence would support a lesser-included offense of first-degree murder. Both prongs of this test must be met, as the majority correctly pointed out in its analysis. The majority's analysis uh, focused on the second prong, which is that the evidence would, support, would not support, in this case, the lesser-included offense of first-degree murder. And if we look in detail at all the evidence that was presented, the evidence is not murky, as the defendant argues, it's not conflicting. We start with the let-go records, um, and this was State's Exhibit 31A, and these exhibits were filed in the court below. They're part of the record so that the court can review these exhibits. In State's Exhibit 31A, that consists of the records and the messages from the let-go app that the defendant and Zach used to set up this transaction. The defendant begins in those messages by lying to Zach, telling him he can't meet where Zach wants to meet because he has kids. He also tells Zach that he's going to be with his kids when they meet. States Exhibit 36 and 37 detail the messages with uh, the defendant's friend Travis, who testified at trial. And the defendant stated to Travis that he shot and killed someone. States Exhibit 49 uh, is messages between defendant and his ex-girlfriend Ashanti. The defendant tells uh, Ashanti after this incident occurs that he shot and robbed someone. Ashanti tells the defendant that he needs to stop posting things about robbing and killing people. In States Exhibit 53, there's more messages from the defendant telling Ashanti that they scanned his hands for gunpowder and bragging that he's very smart because he got the gunpowder off of his hands. That brings us to the defendant's interview with law enforcement, which obviously took place at least a month and a half after these incidents occurred, after the defendant made the statements to his friends, to Travis, to Ashanti. Defendant's statements during the interview corroborated the other evidence in the case. It also showed that he had conversations with at least Tink sometimes be sometime before this uh, crime occurred, where he knew that Tink intended to rob Zach. He knew that was Tink's plan. The defendant then takes the overt act of setting the incident up via the let-go messages, which is provided um, and was provided for the jury to consider. And he went armed with Tink's gun, along with two other individuals who both had guns. He states that he saw Tink point his gun at Zach and stated that Zach was fixing to get robbed by Tink. Now, the dissent employed 
incorrect reasoning in their analysis when they asserted that the second degree instruction was warranted if there was any conflicting evidence at all. That is simply not the test. Um, and the defendant's arguments about the conflicting evidence I'll get into in a moment, but I want to point out for this court that that is not the test. It, the test is not if there's any conflicting evidence at all, then a second degree uh, instruction on the lesser included needs to be given. And the dissent incorrectly applied that test, um, and the majority's analysis correctly considered both prongs. The dissent's analysis didn't even acknowledge the second prong. Um, and so with regards to the conflicting evidence that the defendant talked about, the first thing that defendant mentions uh, in their brief and here today is that at some point, the defendant made a statement to Travis about buying a phone. This is very important for this court's consideration because this is not conflicting evidence at all. When you look at the context of that piece of testimony on transcript page 1057, Travis says the defendant told him at one point in time that he was going to use the LetGo app to buy a phone. In context, Travis seems to be referring to some sort of earlier incident, which is actually consistent with the defendant's own statements in the entirety of that interview. If you read the entirety of the defendant's interview, he details earlier instances where he used apps such as LetGo and OfferUp um, to buy and sell items. He talks about a prior instance where he went to buy a phone um, and, and things of that nature. So that needs to be taken out of any analysis of conflicting evidence because it is not, in fact, conflicting evidence. The next piece of evidence that the defendant focuses, focuses on in their brief and here today is the cash that was found on or near Zach's body. This evidence does not conflict with any element of attempt, attempted robbery with a dangerous weapon. By its very nature, attempted robbery with a dangerous weapon is a crime of attempt. It does not require a completed taking. But beyond that, it's important for this court to consider also that the defendant doesn't actually point to anything that shows how much cash Zach originally had, how much cash was gone. There is no actual definitive evidence whether they did or did not take anything from him. There is evidence that there was cash around his body, but there is no evidence that, that anything was or was not taken. Um, and again, that, that's not even required. And a, a full taking is not required. It, the essential elements of attempted robbery with a dangerous weapon, again, are the unlawful attempted taking of personal property from another, the possession, use, or threatened use of firearms or other dangerous weapon, and the danger or threat to the life of the victim. And that the fact that there was cash found on or near Zach's body does not contradict any element of the underlying felony here. So once those two pieces of evidence are taken out of the analysis, that we're left with the defendant's own statements in the interview with law enforcement stating that he simply intended to sell his phone. This is not conflicting evidence under well-established precedent from this court. Um, the state uh, pointed that out in its brief, five specific uh, decisions from this court, Strickland, Thomas, specifically the 1999 decision uh, from this court and Thomas, Williams, rank and quick. And I do want to point out for this court, uh, in particular, State v. Quick, which was a 1991 decision. In that case, the state proceeded on felony murder and premeditation and deliberation. The underlying felony there was robbery with a dangerous weapon. The victim in that case was stabbed to death. 
In that case, the defendant testified on his own behalf and he denied killing the victim. But there was also a jailhouse snitch in that case who testified at trial. And he testified that the defendant told him that the defendant didn't mean to kill the victim. So even in light of the defendant's own testimony denying involvement in the crimes and denying that he killed the victim and the testimony of the jailhouse snitch, the court still held that there was no evidence that the victim was killed other than in the course of the commission of the felony of armed robbery. And I, I want to point that out for the court because I think this case is, is similar to that case and there's even less here. Because again, I think when we're talking about these statements of the, def of the defendant during his interview, it's important to again consider what those statements actually are. Because he states that my plan was to sell the phone. He states that he told Tink, you don't have to rob him. He never states that he wasn't planning to go here. He didn't know that this was going to happen when he went here. He is making these sort of bare denials, which is what he does throughout the entire interview. If you read the entire interview in context, you can see that every single point, the defendant essentially first denies it, and then he comes out with, with an admission. Essentially, for example, when they're talking about whether he had a gun at the scene, he first states, no, I didn't, I didn't have a gun. Um, and then after pressing him, he, he comes around and admits, well, I did have a gun. It was Tink's gun. Um, and so all of the evidence, his statements match up with the other evidence in the case. Um, it's true that there was no eyewitness testimony here, but there is other physical evidence. There is the let go messages. There is his statements to other people, third parties after the incident. Um, and so to the extent that, that these sort of bare denials can be construed as some sort of conflict, it wouldn't, it's not a material conflict. Um, and when you combine that and, and the context of these statements with the case law uh, from this court on this point, um, this cannot be considered conflicting evidence here. The, def the defendant also argues that the majority employed incorrect reasoning and that we must view the light in the most, in the light most favorable to the defendant. And this is important as well for this court to consider because viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant does not, there's an important distinction between viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant and viewing the, parsing out one or two pieces of the evidence and viewing it in a way that no rational juror could ever view it in the context of the entire record in this case. And that's important and I'm gonna come back to that, but that's essentially what the majority does and that is what the appellant is asking this court to do. He's asking this court to combine select statements by the defendant um, with the fact that, that the victim was shot and killed uh, and ignore the bulk of the overwhelming evidence in this case that points to the fact that Zach was set up as part of a planned robbery um, to support a lesser included offense. And moving on to the prejudice prong, um, defendants simply cannot show prejudice here. Um, even when viewing this in uh, in terms of prejudicial error, there simply is no reasonable possibility of a different result had the jury been instructed um, on second-degree murder. And the clearest indication of this is because the jury actually convicted the defendant of attempted robbery with a dangerous weapon here. 
Um, so that, that in and of itself, in this situation, in the context of this case, um, shows that there wouldn't have been a different result had they been instructed on a lesser included offense. The, the appellant mentions those cases that talk about the dangers of prejudice where it's an all or nothing situation, um, but this is not that. In fact, there was a combination of charges in this case. There was a conspiracy charge as well. Um, and I think that's important because the dissent sort of points to that um, in, in its analysis as an indication that perhaps the jury gave some sort of credence to the defendant's denials. But I don't think that is indicative of that at all, especially when you look at the record here. Um, the state mentioned in its brief that Monty was actually the named co-conspirator in that indictment. Um, and so it would give more credence to the fact that the jury believed that perhaps the defendant um, conspired only with Tink, especially in light of his statements that um, the conversation that he had about robbing the victim was with Tink. Um, and, and specifically with regards to that, if, if you look at the transcript in this case, because I think that's particularly instructive on this point, the jury was out for approximately two hours. Um, the only question they had was regarding the conspiracy charge. Um, they asked the court to reread the jury instructions. That's at page 1290 of the transcript. On pages 1297 and 1298, uh, the jury asks a specific question regarding the conspiracy charge. They ask, does this third point agreement have to be met with only DeMonte or in concert with anyone? On page 1307 of the transcript, the court reads the conspiracy instruction again to the jurors and tells them there had to be at least two people in the agreement, one of whom was defendant and another of whom was DeMonte McCain. They took the jury out at 3 p.m. They read their verdict at 3.17 p.m. And the jury originally went out at noon with a lunch break. So the jury was out for approximately two hours. The only question they had was with regards to the conspiracy charge and whether whether or not uh, essentially it had to, the agreement had to be with the person who was named in the indictment, who was DeMonte McCain, not Tink. And I think that's important because it's specifically um, in State v. Brichikoff, which the appellant uh, filed a motion for additional authority, a memorandum of additional authority, this court, as part of its analysis, um, as part of its prejudice analysis, took the jury's considerations uh, into account. They said that because the jury asked for these other pieces of evidence, and, and Brichikoff involved um, a case where they found the defendant guilty of second-degree murder of killing his wife, um, and the court said that he was entitled to the lesser-included um, instruction on involuntary. And in the prejudice analysis, the court said it's important to uh, take into consideration things like that. And so in this case, what that tells us is that the jury didn't have any questions. There was no possibility, and, and defendant doesn't point to anything that, that would show the reasonable possibility of a different result. They argue that there very much was the reasonable possibility of a different result, but, but don't explain why. Um, and, and the fact of the matter is that there can't be a reasonable possibility of a different result because, again, the jury found the defendant guilty of the underlying felony of attempted robbery with a dangerous weapon. I also want to address um, one thing that the appellant discusses here today about the acting in concert instruction. In the appellant's brief, um, they point out that the defendant's statements negate 
an element of attempted robbery with a dangerous weapon. In the reply brief, um, defendant argues that the statements negate a portion of the acting in concert instruction. And I just want to point out for this court that that, that is not actually the test. So the, the test under Gwynn um, is whether whether the elements of the underlying felony are in conflict. Acting in concert is a theory under which the jury can find the defendant guilty. It is not the underlying felony. And so under Gwynn, it's irrelevant to look at whether any part of acting in concert is in conflict. And again, th this was all in front of the jury to decide. Um, they, they were able to take the defendant's statements into account um, just as they were able to take all of the other evidence into account in this record. And the fact of the matter is that the overwhelming bulk of the evidence here uh, would only point a rational jury um, to convict the defendant of felony murder. It would not support um, second-degree murder. Again, there's just, the defendant argues that there's some conceivable way that a rational jury could find that the, the victim was killed with malice. Um, but as the majority pointed out, um, there's really only those two hypothetical situations where um, they showed up to the scene and, and spontaneously decided to kill the victim, um, which again, just belies all of the evidence. Um, and so again, to, to the extent that there could be any view that the defendant's mere denials, which again, taking into consideration what he says and what he doesn't say, his statements that he planned to sell the phone at some point in time, which I also want to point out for this court that that, that could also be true. At the time when he had this conversation with Pink, perhaps that was when he planned to sell his phone. But that doesn't negate the fact that the subsequent evidence shows that that's not what, what happened. Um, the appellant has a, uh, alluded to the fact several times um, that Tink may have shot the victim. Uh, that is of no consequence here. Obviously, the acting in concert instruction was given. The defendant describes that he saw um, Tink point the gun in the victim's face. Um, so, so that part of the analysis, that has no bearing on whether there's any element in conflict here. Um, it doesn't matter that, that Tink was the one that, that shot the victim in this case. The defendant, the appellant also refers to State v. Thomas, um, the 1989 decision, um, and in the briefing, I believe, and, and the dissent sort of hung its hat on State v. Thomas, the 1989 decision from this court. But I want to point out for this court that the case at hand is distinguishable from State v. Thomas because in that case, that was a drive-by shooting situation. Um, the state proceeded on felony murder with the underlying felony being discharging a weapon into occupied property. And in that case, there was lots of conflicting testimony, witness testimony, and the defendant testified regarding an alibi, um, regarding whether the, the defendant was or was not even there, whether he planned to partake in this shooting. Um, and the court emphasized in its analysis that both the state and the defendant introduced evidence conflicting with the evidence that the defendant shared a common purpose or plan with the co-defendant um, that he fired into the victim's house. And again, 
that's important because this case is distinguishable. It's simply not the case here that there was uh, any conflicting evidence of this, this planned robbery. Um, the defendants, again, the defendant's statements during the interview a month and a half after the crime, significantly after much of the other evidence uh, in the case took place, doesn't show that he didn't share a common purpose or plan. In fact, the overwhelming evidence shows that he did share a common purpose or plan. Um, for all those reasons, the evidence in this case certainly was not conflicting. Um, the, the dissent's view of the test for whether the second degree instruction should have been given was incorrect. Um, the test is not whether there's any conflicting evidence. The test is whether there's conflicting evidence and uh, whether there's, um, whether a rational juror could find the defendant guilty of the lesser included offense on the facts. And the majority correctly analyzed uh, that that was not the case here. So because there was no evidence in this record from which the jury could rationally convict the defendant of second degree murder, and because defendant fails to show a reasonable possibility the jury would have reached a different result had the trial court instructed on second degree murder, the state would respectfully ask this court to affirm the Court of Appeals majority opinion. Thank you. Counsel, rebuttal. May it please the court, a few points. Uh, the state has talked about how, you know, there were these let go records, these phone records showing Josiah setting up the sale, that he said he had kids, that he was gonna be there with his kids. Look, I'm, I'm not up here denying that. That is the truth, but Josiah also explained it in the interview. He talked about how previously when he used other apps to sell phones and other items he had been robbed before and he that's why he wanted tink's help because he wanted some backup and i this is another fact where it could go different ways but we've got to view the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant and design is sitting there explaining to detectives i just wanted to sell this phone but i had been robbed before and i wanted help and i wasn't sure about the best way to do it and that was his explanation for, uh, for the let go records and having Tink there with him. Um, the state talks about how Ashanti said that Jazine admitted, I believe on page uh, 912 of the transcript, $200. And so that to me is pretty concrete evidence that he had $200 on him and they didn't take it. Why not? Again, a rational jury could look at that and think, well, maybe that wasn't the plan after all. Um, the state also talks about how many of these statements Josiah made during the interview were these bare denials, but I just want to give another example about this. On page 75 of the interview transcript, Detective Rooks asked Josiah point blank, what made you so unsure that Tink was going to rob Mr. Finch? Like, what do you, what do you mean you didn't think Tink was going to rob Mr. Finch. And Josiah answers, I, I, I told him, just sell the phone. I said, you ain't got to rob him. Again, you're looking at this. I told him, you don't have to rob this guy. Just help me sell it. Not intent to kill. 
Boy, talk about rabbit hole. Question was specifically addressed in State v. Thomas from 1989, that it is a lesser included offense of felony murder. The trial judge in this case didn't think it was, and that was part of the issue. Um, I hashed that out in the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals accepted the reasoning of State v. Thomas from 1989. For the life of me, here on the spot, I cannot remember the exact reasoning. I, that is just, you know, gone out of my brain. But I will say it is discussed in State v. Thomas. I'll give you the citation. It'll be on YouTube if you don't want to write it down. 325 NC 583, and I'm sorry that I don't, I can't articulate the reason right now, but I know that this court addressed it and said it is a lesser. Um, I'm, I'm looking at my notes. Uh, okay. The state also talked about in their argument that design was not prejudiced by the failure to give an instruction on second-degree murder because the jury had the chance to consider second-degree murder as a lesser here. They may well have decided to, f to find him guilty of second-degree murder instead. And that's talked about in State v. Thomas from 1989, for example, about how conviction of the greater offense doesn't insulate the, uh, the issue from prejudice because you just don't know what the jury would have done. They may well have gone for the lesser verdict anyway. Um, can, I can I just ask you about that here? Um, as I understand the state's argument, they're saying that because they found him guilty of the attempted robbery, um, that, that, they, that they, in essence, couldn't have rationally, since they believed he was guilty of attempted robbery, he could not be found guilty of second-degree murder. Right, but attempted armed robbery is what gets him convicted of first-degree murder. Right. And so they're essentially using that to convict him of first-degree murder. And that, that, to me, it brings me back to State v. Thomas, where this court said conviction of the greater does not mean there's no prejudice. So in other words, based on the jury instructions, the jury understood that if they were going to convict him of murder, they had to find him guilty of it. That is how I understand it. That is my view of this case. And is that where the all or nothing comes in? So rather than starting exactly. from the attempted robbery and saying, well, how could they have landed on second degree murder? They decided he had some moral culpability for the yes. death of this man. And in that sense, there's a it, it's rational to conclude that the jury said, we don't want to, to set this Let young man free. Um, and so our only choice, if we're gonna convict him for, of something for the murder is to convict him of the attempted robbery. Correct, and you know, it's just a circumstance of this case that the state only pursued felony murder. They didn't pursue premeditation and deliberation, okay? So that was the, the felony murder was the only theory for first degree murder as well, um, just sort of leading to this all or nothing problem. Um, okay, so the state talked about how, you know, the jury had before them design statements, they could read his, the interview transcript and consider them as they were deliberating. My pushback against that is they, they, they didn't, they had his statements, but they didn't have his statements with respect to second degree murder. They couldn't weigh the statements he made to detectives against that lesser instruction. And that's just, again, another problem in this case, another reason why the trial court should have given second degree murder. Uh, for all the reasons that I have talked about in the briefing, that I've talked about here today, I ask this court to reverse the majority opinion below 
and Grant design a new trial wherein a jury can consider second-degree murder. Thank you all for your time. Thank you, counsel.